Welcome to the Change Africa podcast. My name is Isaac Kujirinaboa and I'm here with my co-host Daniel Kokumurki. And today we have another distinguished set of guests with us from the Emerging Public Institute. We have Yawa Hansen Kwao. We have Moses Kofi, who are both leading emerging public leaders globally and in Ghana, respectively. And we have two fellows of the Emerging Public leaders, um, Abdul Kudus Abdullahi and Aliyata Utman joining us. And so we are going to delve into how this organization is trying to redefine our perception of public servants, how our perception of public leadership in Africa and what they have done so far and how to tackle the very foundational issues that I personally believe are the core of African leadership. So thank you very much for joining us the team from EPL. Well, thank you, Isaac, first of all, for the opportunity to be here. Um, Emerging Public Leaders is a public service leadership organization. And we really believe that Africa has a lot of promise. And part of how we fulfill that promise is by working to nurture a new generation of competent and ethical public servants that will really drive change and transformation. It's estimated that by 2030, one out of every poor person will be African. So this is a continent that is facing so many developmental challenges. And part of how we solve those challenges is with good leadership. And in the governance space, ensuring that young people have the opportunity to participate in governance, but also have the training and the architecture of support to make meaningful contributions is the reason why we began work in Liberia and are now established in Ghana and Kenya to really provide opportunities for the best and brightest young people to work for their governments and to do so with the support and tools that they need to innovate and to drive transformation. Thank you very much, Yawa, for that very inspiring introduction. Um, we also have with you Ghana Country Director, Moses Kofi. And Moses, you've done a lot of um, strategic leadership programs and you've been in the mentorship space for a while now. My question to you is, when, how did you get to be part of Emerging Public Leaders and what really inspired you to take on the challenge of trying to build young leaders in Ghana? Thank you very much, Isaac. And I'm glad to be part of uh, the, today's program, Change Africa podcast. Um, I find this exciting and inspiring as well because uh, we seem to be on the same path um, aspiring to change the narrative concerning Africa, especially when it comes to leadership and when it comes to problem solving in, our, in this part. I am passionate about leadership and I'm passionate about youth development. And these two things are the things that actually brought me to 
EPL. Um, I consider myself a student of leadership, a lifetime student at that. And I, when I look at what is going on around us, the ways in which our countries are being led, our small communities are being led, and the approaches we use to try to solve our own problems, I believe there's a lot more we could do. And, for, and so just looking around becomes like a source of worry. On the other hand, when you engage young people who very soon, I mean, I mean already they're in the majority when it comes to our population numbers in the, in, the, in, the, in the continent, you realize that there are so many of them. And when you engage them, I get encouraged by what they say. I see young people who are burning to make, cha- make a change in their circumstances with a lot of energy, with a lot of ideas. And that gives me hope. And so whilst on one hand, I'm worried about the current narrative, I see hope in the young ones who are coming up. And that is where my passion, if you like, meets with my desire to see more exemplary leadership on the African continent. And these are the things that attracted me to EPL, because this is about young people who are being prepared to become future leaders in Africa, not just leaders, but leaders who are ethical, competent, and can bring about change to Africa. Okay, so Aliata, the EPL program is targeted at people who are just about finishing their college education, their undergraduate college education, and then zooming into the practice of public service. You know, what I see in our Ghanaian dispensation, and probably is the same replicable in other African countries, is a public service that is not intentional. We don't intentionally find individuals that are brilliant that are purpose-driven and want to cause change in the governance of a nation or want to cause change in the public sector and find themselves and their purposes aligned with that space. We more find, likely than not, people who are consumed by political exuberance and because of some godfather relationship are, you know, just kicked as part of a flock of individuals that almost seem to be hierarchical because, you know, um, it is a part of a family generation of political leaders and then it is their turn and so they join and become leaders. What I am trying to find out is how did you come to the conclusion that you wanted to become a public leader? And how did that conclusion coalesce with joining emerging public leaders? Okay, so um, just like you mentioned, um, my desire to join emerging public leaders was born out of um, meeting Mr. Kofi in person on campus um, in my second year. He actually came to tell us about what EPL was about, the vision, and what they actually stand for. And um, I had no intention to actually go into the public service, but I had the desire and the passion to serve because I believe that leadership is about um, service to the people. 
it's about influence it's about making impact in people's lives so when i got to know the vision of um epo and then the recruitment process which is 100 percent meritocratic there are no ways that you could cut corners in the recruitment process it's purely based on your capacities your capabilities your passion and your delivery so um that is basically why i joined apo because of my passion to serve people and the the translation to make an impact in people's lives no matter how small whether from bottom up uh, in any way in governance that i can okay thank you very much alia alieta um abdul can you tell us about what you are doing right now. I know EPL, you know, they have collaborations with different sectors of government. So where are you right now, Abdul? And how did you find yourself there? Okay, so I'm currently working with the Ministry of Finance, specifically the Internal Audit Directory. I think when I saw the team for the podcast, I said to myself, there couldn't have been any other better person selected to participate in this podcast than me. Because I can quite remember when I was applying to EPL, my short-term goal was to explore my best self through leadership training, which EPL provides. Though the long-term goal was to contribute my quota to the development of motherland Ghana. I was having the belief, and I still do, that leadership is a skill. And just like any other skill, it can be taught, it can be developed and cultivated over time. And when I read about EPL and the testimonies of other fellows, I realized that no other person or institution can do that job better than EPL. That gave me the courage and conviction to apply to their fellowship. And thankfully, I was privileged to be part of... Um, the EPL family. And eight months now, I've never regretted even a bit for joining EPL. EPL puts together young people that have the passion to serve Mother Ghana. And it has been inspiring to um, be surrounded by the spirit of excellence. And so many accomplished young people that wants to use their superpowers to do good in the world. You know, when I was in school for me, I never had the opportunity to join so many uh, minor groups to have that kind of interaction and have the views of other people. But the people I came and met with EPA, I realized that together, when we put our efforts together, we can do something better for Mother Ghana. So I'm really glad to be part of this discussion. You know, what I want to do, Abdul, is to ask you a question. Um, obviously, don't feel bad about telling me this, um, hopefully you don't. But if you look at yourself, right, and the other people you work with at the ministry, what is one thing that you think is crucially different from you because of what you've gone through, the training and the leadership skills that um, EPL has given you? Okay, so I would say, and I like to borrow a word a friend used, that EPL fellows, are, they see us to be like superhumans okay so in a sense that um i am available to take any task given whether i have the knowledge or not because i know that i can learn i can reach out to people that know 
and ask and do the work. And I have the ability to complete tasks in time. I'm very sure that um, how we see things at the ministry here is different from other people that are not part of EPL because of the training we have been receiving from EPL. Because personally for me, I come to work very early and most people don't do that. And it was through the sensitization EPL gave us and the passion we also have to save. I don't close early when there is still work to do in the ministry. Now you come to the ministry and not even other national service programs, but workers before five, most of them are gone. And exactly five, you hear them saying, government money has finished. And so they are going home. And sometimes there's still work to do in the office. EPL fellows don't do that. And that is something different we are really doing. And I see myself also doing the same. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, the political <laughs> example you gave is very reminiscent of what we hear about government um, workers. Um, now, I want, I want to ask you, our EPL exists to build a stronger civil service from the bottom up. What has been the approach of doing that, of coming up with a strategy of selecting the best and brightest people, not only from Ghana, but from the other countries where you are, um, Kenya, Li Liberia, and what has been one core thing that has been a challenge that you and your team thought that this would be something we can surmise, but you've, you found out to be a more difficult challenge than you previously imagined? Well, Isaac, first of all, I think the work of emerging public leaders is really about strengthening governance in Africa. And when we say we're doing this from the bottom up, we're really saying that we're focused on the drivers of real change in any continent. Africa has the youngest population, the most youthful population. And if we are going to really drive sustainable change, we have to start with this young population. So our approach is to identify leadership in the young and nurture that talent for the public good. We think deeply about what it takes to be a public service leader of the future. We now live in a world where there are driverless cars and artificial intelligence and, and pandemics and so many evolving crises and opportunities. That means we need a different type of policymaker, a different type of, of government leader to think critically, to act ethically, and to drive change. So our approach really is to work with governments to identify young, talented people in their countries and nurture them so that they can become, as Abdullah was talking about, like indispensable. The fellows that we place in the various government ministries are known to get things done. They're competent, never say no, and are always ready to learn. And our role, as we see it, is to provide an architecture of support around them so that they can do the work. 
And every country needs its best and brightest in government service. And our mission is really to reignite that spirit of change and to show that it's possible that young Africans all over this continent have what it takes to really meet the moment. So that's part of what is inspiring why we do what we do and how we're doing it. In terms of challenges, I think the challenges that most African governments face is finding competent talent to really work in public service institutions all over the world and particularly in the developing world. You know, a lot of people come into government work with often the wrong motivations and are often not there or don't end up there through meritocratic means. So a hallmark of how we're doing this work is really focusing on merit-based recruitment. Uh, I'm sure the fellows can tell you it's not easy to get into this program. It's a very rigorous process. You jump through many hoops and we look at not just how smart you are, but also your motivations and proclivities towards leadership. So, you know, by adopting a merit-based approach to our recruitment for our public service fellowships, we're also creating opportunities for people that are ordinarily overlooked. Uh, So in our fellows, you see such diversity, uh, men, women, and also geographical representation that people from uh, disparate ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, um, et cetera, have the opportunity to work for government because that's what a merit-based recruitment enables you to do. So many African governments continue to rely on uh, foreign technical assistance to drive many of the policies that they want to implement. And through emerging public leaders, we're nurturing that local talent. So to the governments, we are a low cost um, method to get high caliber talent. And to the fellows, we take the confusion out of how to navigate your way into public service. So in that way, we're solving what I think is a critical gap, filling that critical gap uh, by this innovative leadership program. Yes, I'm, I have not seen any other program of this kind in Africa. Probably there is. But there are three things that you said continually that really captivated me, which was that we need leaders who can think critically, act ethically, and drive change. And I think that's the summation of African leadership and its need. We definitely need people who can think critically because it seems that when we're having conversations about some of the policy that we are willing to make for the future of the country, it doesn't seem like it has been intimately investigated. And it doesn't seem like the people who are there really are acting out of an ethical goodwill. And definitely doesn't seem like they want to drive change. They want to drive the nation into the innovation and, and the steadfast growth of technological growth and all that the world is into now. We seem to be lacking behind and they, they are not catching up. And so hopefully EPO can do that. But one thing I want to ask you, Moses, is that there are only a handful of fellows, right, that are going to these departments and ministries. How do you plan that these small group of individuals who are going there, rightly motivated and skilled, 
would be able to change the mass of the whole ministry? Or what is the approach towards scaling the impact? Right. The, the program started only uh, four years ago, and we can still say that we are evolving. Now, this is donor-funded, and therefore, uh, the extent to which you can scale up actually depends on your access to the needed funds to do this. Indeed, we know we have, we have small numbers at this point in time, but we are quite excited so far uh, by the impact that they are having in their spheres of influence. Uh, we believe we are sowing a seed in these young ones. And the fellowship is actually over a two-year period, and it's not like going to continue forever. But the kind of seed we are sowing in, in the fellows is the kind of seed that gets so well-founded that even after the fellowship program is over, it is something that they can hold on to and carry into the long, in the long run and carry the long term because they're not going to become leaders of our, uh, public institutions overnight. They're going to go through the grind. They're going to learn. They're going to uh, have to navigate many different challenges, which is all part of the learning process. But by the time they get there, they should be prepared to make the necessary change. Now. One, some of the ways in which we are impacting, notwithstanding our small numbers, is that in uh, Kudus's uh, narration, he talked about taking on challenge, whether he knows how to do it or not. And when he takes on something that he does not know how to do, he talks to people who do know how to do it. And we have come to realize that something that we encouraged amongst our fellows is working. Notwithstanding the fact that they may not be in the same ministry, they do get in touch with themselves. They link up together so that if Kudus knows that, that he's been given a task that requires somebody who understands probably economics better, okay, he's able to reach out to these fellows and they help him to get a better understanding of the problem and actually overcome that challenge. Now, even if it is not a, a, an EPL fellow, they, they, they have understood the importance of influence. And when it comes to influence, which is actually a basic um, objective of leadership, we have thought, taught them how to be able to influence in all directions. You don't only influence the people below you, but you should be able to influence upwards. You should be able to influence at your level, across you know, units, across uh, uh, maybe even ministries. And so... You use that influence to try and get what you need to make the, get the work done. And so that, these are some of the ways in which they're making this impact. There are people in units, in, in various directorates in the ministries, whose works have gone beyond them. So it means that they are making their work speak for them. Okay, They are making their work ethics also speak for them. So they, in, in those spaces, they are known to be these guys who come very early, Meanwhile, they are only entry-level uh, 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 staff of the ministry, or they are mere civil, uh, sorry, uh, national service personnel, as we may want to see them. However, their output speaks differently. And the resources we put at their disposal through the various things they've learned, plus we also actually equip them with laptops to facilitate their work in the ministry, makes, makes sure that they, they, they get to be seen. They get invited to sit on committees that ordinarily 
National Service personnel would not be sitting on such committees or entry-level staff would not be sitting on those committees. But it is because they have demonstrated that they have what it takes, all right, to live up to those challenges. And that is impact. It may be small, but that is impact. In the long term, our, our hope and our vision is that we should be able to actually scale up in numbers, all right, okay, in the ministry to be able to make this impact even felt bigger. We do recon, recognize that, for example, entry-level uh, staff might not be able to make so much um, of an impact when it comes to decision-making, because at their level, they may not be part of uh, policy decisions at the highest level in, in, in government. However, uh, so well, because of this, we, there, there may be plans on looking at ways in which we can rope in other people who can support them, provide them the necessary support systems. And we do that because we see, for example, their supervisors as very critical stakeholders in this journey. And so some of the activities we undertake is to engage supervisors of our fellows to let them understand what this whole um, vision is about. And they get sold out. They get so excited that they, they actually are more intentional in supervising and coaching them in ways that these people turn out better than probably other people who have, uh, are working uh, beneath them. So these are informal and creative ways in which we are trying to get a wider impact all right, because our numbers are small. But in the long term, we hope that this and the benefits of this program would be seen and given the needed support to be able to expand it across ministries and into the wider public service. You know, just two days ago, I met someone. I didn't know this part of the program, right? I'd read a little bit about it. But I met someone who's one of those support uh, systems for fellows. Um, I think he wouldn't mind if I mentioned his name, um, Kojo Edu, who is at the Ministry of Education that you probably know. And we had a conversation about a possible partnership and organization I was having. And to be honest, I don't meet a lot of exceptional public servants. And that is the reality. It's a fortunate reality, right, of our African leadership. But this was a gentleman who, when we started speaking, talked about some of the failings in his early career as a foundation of realizing what really public service is about and then segueing into what he's doing and how he's changed and then talking about um, um, how he's helping other people become like that. And so I have had first-time people that I personally can vouch and say that these people are truly distinct from what we know of the perception of the ordinary public leaders. And I think that's a great work that you're doing. Um, before I come back to the fellows, or maybe I should actually ask the fellows, because you are the ones who did this. Um, Abdul Kudus, can you tell us about the module of um, emerging public leaders? What do you learn when you go there? What really is the course or training, or what really happens there, and what makes that distinct from other things that you've learned? So for me, um, I would say EPL, um, the way EPL is structured is all about mentoring, mentorship. Yeah. And I would like to quote Mars Murray. Mars Murray once said that um, the greatest act of leadership is mentoring. It is not building a building. It is not establishing a program. And it is not building an institution. 
EPL fellows are assigned two mentors, one public sector mentor and one private sector mentor. And at the same time, at our, our workplaces, they ensure that each and every fellow has a supervisor. Now, the beauty or the beautiful part of their mentorship program is this. They, they, they don't just mentor us, but they teach us and instill in us how to also mentor other people. For example, um, there's a major component of the EPL program, which is community service project, where most often we fellows will also reach out to um, the secondary schools and also guide our brothers and sisters there in the senior high schools because we've been on that road before and we know what it takes, how to select various courses in our universities and all those stuff. So we also try to guide them. So they don't just mentor us, but they teach us how to also mentor other people. Yes, and I think that is a beautiful part of EPL. Okay, Aliata, can you shed more light into the module, what you are taught when you go into EPL? and how that has shaped you. Also, maybe if you can also expand on some of those peculiar mentorship moments that really changed or shifted your perspective around something that you previously knew. So just like my colleague said, um, we assigned two mentors, one from the public service and one from the private, uh, public sector and then the private sector. And um, this is supposed to give us both perspectives in the work world. So the public sector mentor has um, the experience in the public service and how things are done. Some have risen through the ranks to get to director roles and chief director roles. And as beginners, I think that um, getting to learn from the people who have already um, journeyed through the path that we are traveling is the best way to know the do's and don'ts and how to actually do better than they did. And the private sector um, mentor is also supposed to give us um, the different perspective as to what happens in the private sector. Um, unlike the public sector where the dynamics are different, the, public, uh, the private sector mentor is supposed to um, expose us to the work world beyond the private sector and then governance work and also make us appreciate how um, work in the public sector affects the private sector. So we all know that um, policy making and implementation affects the average Ghanaian, no matter where exactly you are working. And this is made um, very, it is enlightened more with the private sector and then our relationship with them. Also, as part of our orientation, we are taking to um, topics like emotional intelligence, policy implementation, even Microsoft Office. All these are skills that are needed um, for us to excel in our workplaces and beyond. So I find that um, some of my colleagues who are average national service personnel do not have any idea as to how to even write a report, how to... Um, analyze an Excel document, et cetera, et cetera. Now, these petty skills are what EPL exposes us to as fellows and um, puts us at a higher position to deliver better in our various workplaces. 
So that is a very brilliant answer. Thank you very much, Aliata. I would now like to find out from Yawa. Your journey is interesting. I think you're one of the first people, uh, and I don't know for sure, but Ashesi University probably had one other cohort of students before you joined, or perhaps was one of the very first um, cohort of students. You became the um, student body president and then moved on to do a lot of great things. But you have really, you know, your career has been in the leadership space for a very long time. How did you see this as a calling? Because that, from how I see it, it seems like it's your life's purpose. How did you find that calling? And when you found out that calling, what were you? What were you doing previously? And how did that change your orientation? Has it been something that you always um, saw yourself going to do? Or there was just one particular moment that brought you to the realization that this leadership thing is my calling and I want to do it? Well, Isaac, I think there are several factors that have led me to to this moment. So Ashesi University definitely has played a big part in my career. I think growing up in the U.S. as political refugees and then returning to Ghana as a young adult and then going to a university that really emphasized leadership and um, instilled in me a love and confidence and pride in being from Africa, I think really helped form the foundation that uh, has 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 led me to to this point in my career. So I think Ashesi is known to be a place that that is clear in its vision that they want to create a a new generation of ethical and entrepreneurial leaders for Africa. And, you know, my experience there becoming the first female student government president um, and really, you know, just opening my eyes to the gaps in women's political representation definitely informed my choices uh, after graduation. But I think, you know, my life's purpose really is about unlocking opportunities for women and young people. So my work through Emerging Public Leaders is really about influencing that governance space because I spent years of my life prior running a women's leadership nonprofit and know firsthand that you can help women gain confidence and skills, you can train, you can build capacity. But some of the issues and the the barriers to uh, women and girls and young people, for that matter, are regulation and policy. And if we don't affect the next generation of policymakers. If we don't have women and other underrepresented groups at the decision-making table, then we won't have good governance in Africa. That was my aha moment. And that's what drove me to this work, that if we can invest in building a pipeline of talent that understands the issues but has proximity to some of these underrepresented 
populations, then it's an important way of ensuring that the, the way the next generations evolve is greatly improved. So that's a bit about why I felt, you know, compelled by the vision of emerging public leaders. And I think there's great opportunities because when we have more women and young people in government, we have better policy. And through the trainings and through the mentorship and all of the extra support services that we provide to our fellows, we're really focused on ethical leadership as well. Moses leads our partnership with Ashesi University, um, which, you know, we borrow heavily from their giving voice to values curriculum uh, to teach our fellows to start flexing the mental muscle about ethical dilemma that they may face in the course of their public service journey. And, you know, as I said before, by investing in the development of women leaders like Aliata on this call, it's probably one of the most important investments we can ever make. Because when we look at the stats, you know, there is a disproportionate, um, uh, you know, women are disproportionately affected by some of the developmental challenges facing Africa today. So, there's also a growing amount of evidence showing that having more women in government results in more emphasis being placed on critical developmental issues, including health and education and food security. And we're seeing, you know, in the U.S., for example, how uh, women's reproductive rights are being challenged. And, you know, by having women in government uh, you know, policymakers, th there's a chance, a real strong chance that those rights will not be impinged upon. So there's just a lot of growing evidence as well that having women in government, having the voices of youth represented brings stronger economic growth. So it made a lot of sense for me, especially during COVID, seeing how our fellows stepped up uh, to volunteer their time and to use their skills to help their government agencies to respond effectively to the challenge. So I'm encouraged by what I've seen through my life's work, working, whether working to promote women as leaders or helping to create pathways for young people in government, that when you have the right people in the right place in government, better policies emerge. And when better policies emerge, you know, citizens are better served. So for me, this is really about putting citizens at the center of development and by activating the potential and the power that women and youth represent. Thank you very much, Ewa. You know, as you rightly said about women's leadership, the statistics are in our favor. And as men, we have to admit that um, one of my favorite presidents in the world has to be Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand. And, you know, that country is a, is a, is a wonderful country. Everything works in that country. And even in COVID, they showed, you know, how they were able to, you know, stay top of the issues more than most European and, and countries in the, um, in the Nordic countries were able to do. It just shows you how astute when we train leaders who are women, um, can really change the course of nations. And definitely looking at the disparity of women leadership in Africa, that is even more needed. Now, Moses, I'm circling back on this again, but I'm really interested in the curriculum. I think Yawa said something around some borrowed curriculum from Ashesi University, because it has to be learned, right? 
um, especially because we live in an environment where ethicality is never taught. I, I, I struggle to think through any module or course I did in the university or even um, primary school that is intentional about teaching people to be ethical, going through the dilemmas of the realities that happens in the workplace and how to choose intentionally to make the right decision all the time. So I'm particularly interested in how EPL is molding the next generation of leaders, today's generation of leaders, who are actually thinking about these very difficult situations and then framing their mindsets to make the right decision, or at least most of the time. Yeah, I think we would all accept that there are ethical dilemmas that people face all over. So such difficult situations can be found at home, in the workplace, at church, and virtually everywhere we go. Um, it's not restricted to the public uh, sector space. Now, the question is, how do you go around these difficult situations? And they can be extremely difficult. Now, from the stories we have heard, and maybe we have given people the opportunity to share, we realize that these are kind of difficult. You find yourself, let's say, having been taught, let's say, at home or from school, like um, how Chelsea focuses on teaching ethical leadership. And you get thrown into or you get into the workspace and that space in which you're working and spend most of your time probably is fraught with um, situations that are totally against what you have been taught, all right? You get to the point where you have to make the difficult decision, what do I do? How do I go about it? Do I, do I just leave, all right? Or how do I navigate my path to make a change in that space? The thing is you cannot keep running away all the time because invariably you go and meet it again. And so what the giving values, um, voice to values uh, approach or model teaches is how to be able to manage your these eth ethical dilemmas that you encounter. And it, it teaches you that probably the best way to go about it is not necessarily to confront, but to ask yourself quite a number of questions, all right? What, what are the things that give you, if you like, the boldness to talk about things or, things or to speak up? You encounter situations, sometimes you speak up. Other times you're unable to speak up. You want to ask yourself, why did I speak up at this point and why did I not speak up? You also ask yourself that what is actually influencing my boldness to speak, all right? And at the end of the day, you realize that it boils down to the values that you hold as a person. And those values can be challenged. Those values are challenged by those circumstances. And so you, you want to find support systems that would help you to navigate those and to actually overcome those hurdles. And um, Ashesi University, through its education collaborative institution, has actually charted a path to try and help um, actually expand or extend, yes, this training to institutions, all right, teaching people within institutions and in uh, higher education institutions as well, how to navigate these uh, difficult situations. 
it, 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 it teaches you to appreciate what we call enablers and also disablers. That is the things that actually facilitate your boldness to do or to, 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 to be bold, to speak up, and the things that actually stop you from speaking up. There, there, may be, there may be things like value, your personal values, but there may also be education, sorry, organizational uh, circumstances that affect your, your ability to speak or not to speak and so on. Who, are, who, who would this affect? It teaches also about how do you rationalize the situations you're looking at and how do you reframe or rephrase, rephrase those uh, um, uh, rationalizations? Do you give reason to it and say that, well, it's been done everywhere, so it will not make any difference if I did it? Or do you say that it's so immaterial that I might as well just do it and move on and so on? But I think that approach is very insightful. It's encouraging because it teaches people on ways to go about this situation without necessarily being accusative and judgmental of the people they are dealing with. Because at the end of the day, your objective is to bring about change in your space. And so how do you go about it without, without necessarily succumbing to that pressure, but going about it in a way that at the end of the day, not only have you been able to make a change or effect a change, but you also have been able to impact on somebody's life because of the approach you used to come out of that situation. And so giving voice to values is actually an approach I would highly recommend to as many institutions as possible. I am fortunate to have undergone the training of trainers and therefore I hold a certificate in giving voice to values uh, training. Now, I should see investing collaboration with education collaborative, organizing um, a, a conference they call the June convening. And they've been organizing these convenings year after year. This year, there are three different tracks that are being looked after at. And one of them is ethics and, uh, ethics and leadership track. And um, I'm, I'm, I've been fortunate to have been invited to participate as a facilitator in one of the workshops. But this definitely has helped our, our fellows. We, we have taken the trouble to take all our fellows through the giving voice to values uh, model. And so they appreciate it. And they are, the feedback they give us is that when they encounter situations, this quickly comes to mind and it helps them to know how to go about it. I must say that it, might, it may not be a panacea to every challenge that they face, but at least it gives them some, um, if you like, some, some a basis, a foundation to stand on, you know, to be able to do something. And as we hear more stories from them, it also gives us an opportunity to, creative, to be creative about new ideas and probably building on the initial um, blocks to, to come up with new ways of helping them overcome the challenge, yeah. So this is a, a, a model or an approach that we would recommend highly to as many people as possible, including homes and actually of uh, religious uh, settings as well. Yeah, okay. Hi everyone, Daniel here. Um, from my side, um, I mean, very interesting. I mean, personally, um, very passionate about change in Africa, in Ghana, but um, mostly my interactions have been more with the private sector. So very interesting to see what you're doing in the space and also to have the fellows on board. 
Now, at the beginning, I think Aliata and then also Yawa made mention of the merit-based recruitment. So I would be very much interested to know a bit more about um, the process, how you go about that merit-based uh, recruitment, both in maybe first finding and attracting the talent and then what, like how the recruitment process works. So maybe if we, if maybe uh, Yawa could expand on that. Well, actually, Moses leads recruitment for emerging public leaders in Ghana, and both Abdul and Aliata were recruited through that process. So I welcome one of them to talk more about what it's specifically like. I can give you a quick summary of uh, the process and maybe Aliata and uh, Kuduso kind of share a bit of the experience. So our target audience up to now has been final year students in our various universities. And so we try to market the program to them and we use the relevant uh, channels to get to reach out to these ones. Um, usually we run an application process that lasts for between one month and one and a half months. All right, so when we announce that applications are open, they are, it's an online application, you go online and you answer some questions and you fill an application form online. It includes two essays, all right, about your understanding about the public sector. And um, I think one other question that has to do with your leadership experience, okay, wherever you find yourself. So when these are submitted, we subject them to number of layers of vetting before we settle on the final lots, usually 20, all right? Um, and the first layer has to do with vetting the app applications using five basic uh, parameters, all right? So is a person Ghanaian? Does this person met this? And, and we use uh, alumni as well as uh, alumni of other fellowships like us to go through that vetting process. Before they do that, we, we actually take them through a briefing session and we are very strict on various things. Every application is anonymously vetted by two people and they don't know. But at the end of the day, we use uh, an average of those two scores to know who moves on to the next stage. One other important uh, component of that debrief is to first uh, ask that people are, should do, actually understand do a full disclosure. All right. So after that vetting stage, we actually we anonymize the the the, the applications using numbers so that you're not able to really tell whether you are vetting Kofi or Kwame's application. When, it, when, when we are got done with this particular level, we go into the first round of interviews. And for the first round of interviews, we have two panel members talking to each and every one of these applicants. And it is over certain structured questions. There's a score guide that determines where, whether somebody should score three out of five or four out of five or one out of five. It's all, there's a real score guide. And that is what is used by the panel members to determine that. Even after they are, that, that they are done with the interviews, they discuss and come to a consensus. So after the first round of interviews, we now know who should go into the, the last round. The last round is a little more uh, complicated and more comprehensive. We call it um, an assessment center, and it includes one, a one-on-one a one -on -one interview. It includes a, a group interview. It includes a, 
the test in Microsoft applications like Excel and Word, and it includes a, a short essay on, on a topical issue. And these are also subjected to the same rigor, all right, in scoring, like I described for the first round. And it is after people have gone through these levels that we take the, an average of their, their performance at the assessment center to determine probably the final 40. And then the final 40 are yet again subjected to another uh, test we call the career direct assessment tool. And we use the services of an external consultant to apply this test on them. Now this helps us also to determine people who have a heart for public service and so on and so forth. So these are the different layers we go through and that we have put in place mechanisms that ensures that an individual cannot, one individual cannot actually influence that this person must go through or not. It is, it is done very transparently. And we are quite kind of proud about that because year after year, it has yielded the kind of results we have been looking for. It would be great to hear from Aliata Okudus about their, an experience, their experience with the process. And I think I must finally say that for people who did not make it after this process, they have written to us and shared with us how the process, how they have learned so much from the process, thanking us for the opportunity to go through uh, this, uh, this particular process, although they didn't even make it. And that gives us a lot of comfort and satisfaction. Okay, Aliata, can you tell us your experience with the recruitment process? You know, I'm particularly interested in what you found as the most challenging. As part of the recruitment process, just like um, Mr. Moses mentioned, the, it starts with a, an application form um, where you are, after filling in your details, you're supposed to write two essays, um, talking about your passion for the service, your leadership experience, and um, what you intend to bring on board as a fellow. And then there are one-on-one -on -one interviews, group interviews, um, critical thinking sessions, Microsoft Office and Excel um, tests, which are all timed um, as well. So um, the challenging parts of the interviews, I must say I enjoyed every bit of it. Um, but the part that I appreciated most was um, the practical nature of the interview questions. So they are looking forward to seeing what um, you think is the problem, for example, what you think is the problem with the leadership in Ghana. And as um, an aspiring leader, what do you think can be done to change it? Now, these are very... Um, thought-provoking questions that will require you to think and uh, give a very meaningful answer. So as challenging as it was, it made me also reflect on um, my passion for leadership and what I think can be done differently to change the narrative. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Chris, can you briefly share so that we end the call? So Okay, thank you once again for the opportunity. Actually, the interview was really a rigorous one because I can quite remember when I made it, um, when you share the experience with someone, the first thing that comes to mind is 
how did you make this or how 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 was it how, how was that possible and i remember we went through all these stages and it wasn't easy for me i won't lie because i was so passionate and determined to be part of the final 20 that sometimes i couldn't sleep at night because you finish an interview and you are on your bed wondering whether you make it to the next stage and that was it for other fellows too so the interview was really a rigorous one starting from the application stage where you write a number of essays and it wasn't just like um the essays if you don't have a track record of um volunteering activities and leadership um positions you will not be able to even answer most of the application stage process regardless of um, going for the interviews so i think that the um the interviews and the recruitment stage was really vigorous and it was also exciting too especially the final stage where we did the career direct assessment where they tested us on our values our interests and i think our personality too and after at the end of the um, the assessment, it will generate a report for you about yourself. And up to this, I still keep on reading my 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 report, and it's sort of like a guide to me where you need to work on, where you need to focus, and a lot of stuff. So it's really challenging and exciting at the same time. <laughs> that sounds like a great process. So, last question to you, Moses, before we end the conversation: What has been the continuity pipeline? for some of the people from the very first cohort because i want to see what happens after epl all right so they they have entered into the phase of the program we call alumni engagement which we uh, we hope would be a lifelong engagement so they are done with the fellowship which was a two-year thing for our first cohort they passed out in 2020 they are permanent workers in the in the in government at the moment and we we are very proud of them because they have been flying high the flag of epl wherever they find themselves um because i i describe the fellowship as a seed sowing if you like thing and because of the seeds that have been sown in them they are carrying on with the passion and the learnings and actually affecting infecting other people with what they have studied. Um, some of them are pursuing maybe further schooling and so on. But our aim and our hope is that they're going to stay in the long uh, haul. They're going to make a career in the civil service and they're going to become the kind of change uh, leaders that we are looking for. I must say that there are people in the civil service of Ghana who are equally brilliant and have a passion for Mother Ghana. And in their journey, in the journeys of our EPL fellows, they're actually identifying these people, finding them, and collaborating with them on this journey because obviously they have the same passion of changing what the stories are concerning Africa. So um, our, our, our alumni engagement involves finding them appropriate people to help their career development even within the civil service. Okay, we are working very closely with the Office of the Head of Civil Service, who are a key partner on this journey to find various innovative ways of ensuring that people who are demonstrating excellence, all right, and above 
high performance in their various fields get some, if you like, uh, you can call it an incentive, all right, to, to actually grow faster. So they're, they're, these are happening at different levels. And I, I, I love our people in the, on that side because they understand the system so well that they are an invaluable uh, source of, if you like, not only information, but guidance in how we um, actually uh, embark on this journey so that at the end of the day, those, the, the objectives we have set ourselves to be achieved. So we do not have all the answers concerning um, actually continue, how the pipeline continues indefinitely, but we are in constant conversations with our partners to see how best we can keep improving and improving uh, the program to actually make this uh, actually make them make a career in the service. Year after year, we have been undertaking iterative tweaks. So we'll, we look at how the year went, we see something we can improve on and we improve upon it. So every day we are making improvements. And I, I believe that another time when we speak on this matter, I should be able to give you a lot more different things that we are, we are doing to ensure that they stay for the long haul and become the people that we expect them to be. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, yeah, to stay with the outlook into the future that Moses started, I would like to for our last question to Aliata and Abdul. So what I would like to know is um, with the privilege of the education from EPL that you got and now your current experiences in the public sector, what do you, how do you anticipate Ghanaian public leadership to change and what's the role you would like to play in that? So personally, as um, after the orientation session, I, I, I got a conviction that um, as leaders, the only way that you can learn all the theory about leadership, you can read all the books about leadership, but the only way that you can actually practicalize what um, you read and the leadership models of the leaders that you want to emulate is to put yourself out there, to put your hand up, to volunteer, to lead people. And um, personally, um, during my service, about a few months ago, I volunteered to become the National Service Personnel Association, the General Secretary. And what I've been able to do so far, our mandate is basically to um, ensure the welfare of national service um, persons within the district, that's Greater Accra. And um, what I've been able to do so far is to practicalize what EPO has been able to instill in me, um, the leadership skills, um, how to make an impact, how to um, influence people and I believe that um, with the skills that I've obtained, I'm in a better position to actually do that, be more empathetic, be passionate, and then try to actually make an impact in people's lives. Okay, thank you. Um, leadership about the future or in the near future. For me, I would like to say solving contemporary global challenges require new political actors unconventional strategies and alliances. As Albert Einstein rightfully said, that you can't solve problems you created 
with the same mentality. You can't solve a problem with the same mentality you use when you created them. So with EPL, I'm sure they are raising new people or upcoming leaders with a different mentality. And I'm sure and I have high hopes that things are going to change because with the training, the values and um, the values and the training given to us by EPL and combined with our passion to serve, I'm sure we're going to do better. We're going to do better. And every good leader will really love that because you want to raise someone and to see the person come and do better than you did. And so for leadership about the future, there is really high hopes with EPL and other institutions that see the need of training the youth to take up the mandate of leadership in the near future. Well, that has been a great conversation with emerging public leaders who are committed to building the next generation of African public leaders. And we've had Moses Kofi with us. We've had Yawa Hansen with us. We have Aliyata with us. We've had Abdul Kudus Abdullah with us. And these are the leaders who are trying to make the story of Africa different when it comes to public leadership. Again, Moses Kofi is the country director of Imagine Public Leaders in Ghana. Yawa Hansen Kwao is the executive um, director global for emerging public leaders. And we've had with us two fellows of the program, Abdul Kudus, Aliyata Utman. And it's been a wonderful conversation of telling the story of an organization that is eventually going to probably be one of the most influential when it comes to building the next generation of public servants and leaders in Africa. It has been a wonderful conversation and I want to thank you, Moses. Thank you, Abdul Kudus, Aliyata for joining us. And hopefully when the program has traversed a new course, we can have another conversation to see the growth that has happened. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you very much, Isaac. Uh, thanks for this opportunity. And we wish you well that you use this channel to achieve your objectives. Thank you very much. Thank you. And definitely, if you are a Ghanaian, if you are in Libya, uh, sorry, Liberia, Kenya, and you want to see change in public service, and most of us want to do that, and you feel the connection to want to work in public service, there's no other place to start your career than emerging public leaders. Uh, maybe Moses, let me give you a chance to tell us when the next application um, comes and what people need to do. We'll be announcing that uh, probably in the, at the beginning of uh, June or by the middle of June. And so people should just watch out. Uh, so far, one of the most effective channels for us has been word of mouth. Because of the kind of experiences our fellows have had, they've gone out there and shared it with their colleagues. And so they keep asking. But we'll go onto all the social media channels. We'll go on, we'll be on uh, on, on all those channels. We, actually, we also try to get targeted platforms in the different universities so that we don't lose out on anybody. And we, I think I, I use this opportunity to say that we actually are an inclusive uh, organization. We encourage that it doesn't um, matter your your physical status, where you come from in this country, you, you, are, you are accepted into this program. Um, yeah, provided you meet the minimum requirements that will be set for everybody. And we well, encourage ladies especially to take on this challenge. 
Thank you very much, Yawa. Thank you very much, Moses. Thank you, Aliyata Abdul. It's been a great conversation, and this has been the Change Africa podcast. Bye bye. Thank you.